and welcome to GradCast, the official podcast and radio show for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I'm Tanya, your co-host. Today we are interviewing a friend of mine who actually I work closely with, see him almost every day, <laughs> uh, Wes Robinson. He's in the Simon Lab in the biology department here at Western. Hey, Wes. Hello, everybody. How's it going? Good, good. So um, I guess we can just jump right into it. Uh, of course, everyone knows our following, that I work with flies. Everyone <laughs> would obviously know that, right? So they yes. would know that maybe if Wes works with me, that he must work with flies too. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, about your work with flies? For sure. Um, so. I have a strong genetics background, so I was looking to apply that genetics when I was looking for a project. So our lab focuses on a protein called neuroligin, which in humans uh, is a candidate gene for autism. So our lab being a social behavior lab in Drosophila, we're looking to characterize how mutations in this protein can affect the behavior of Drosophila. So I'm going to jump right in there because I don't work with flies. <laughs> what is Drosophila? Drosophila melanogaster is the species name for a fruit fly. All right, so the, so the little guys on your fruit. So fun fact for everyone, <laughs> there are more than one kind of fly. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. And then the other question I had just when you were starting there, can you just sort of backtrack and tell us what the protein is and then how that relates to autism or what you had mentioned that it's... For sure. Yeah. yeah so um, the protein, it's a protein at the synapse of two neurons. So a synapse just means it's a gap between two neurons, and that's how neurons talk to each other. Uh, so the protein actually helps facilitate the connection of two, of two different neurons or multiple neurons, and it also facilitates the transmission of signaling through those neurons. So how that is associated with autism is that uh, mutations in this protein can then somehow affect the transmission of neuron to neuron and therefore brain sending messages to the rest of the body and that seems to be what might be causing some of the symptoms of autism. Hmm. And what symptoms specifically can you... That is a great question. Yeah. I work on flies. All right, cool. <laughs> so with the flies, With the symptoms? flies. <laughs> so um, we, what we are looking at specifically in flies is uh, sensory integration in their in their brains, for example. So it's a, it's a looking at how they respond to the environment. Mm -hmm. So going back to autism, uh, the autistic person is defined as someone who has difficulty deciphering social cues. Mm -hmm. So when you bring that back to the fly, what would social cues be? For example, flies that are in a group that want to stay together. Mm -hmm. uh, so in our lab, we have a behavioral test where we put flies in a chamber and we find that the flies are consistently settling at a preferred social space between each other. Right. Uh, that social space being about two body lengths. So when we are mutating this protein, we're trying to see if that affects their behavior at all, uh, specifically how they're able to uh, examine the cues of other flies and are they able to integrate that and then have a normal social behavior. And so are you able to then link that to autism in the sense that, like, how would you make that link to the human model potentially? Yeah, so um, the, the neuroligin protein has been heavily studied in humans and mice and flies. So where I'm trying to make the link specific to my thesis or th to my project is 
I'm trying to first characterize where in the brain of the fruit fly the protein is heavily expressed. And then we're trying to map the circuitry of what throws, what flows through my protein. So we're able to map the the, uh, the neural circuitry. And then the hope is that if we're able to find downstream targets of the neural circuitry through my protein, then we'll be able to have therapeutic drugs that act on these targets okay. instead of acting upstream where there could be a more widespread effect and you could get side effects. Right. So that's why we're trying to sort of focus on finding a succinct target, which then may be then tested in mice or tested in humans as therapy for somebody with autism. So then do you, like, do flies that don't have a mutation or anything like that, do they have a certain um, distance that they normally would sit at? Is there, like, a, almost like a control for flies? Yeah, for sure. So sp- specific to Drosophila melanogaster, there's a strain of Drosophila melanogaster called Cantonese, and that's the control strain that's pretty widely universally used as the control. Uh, there are other types, but the the most popular is Canton S. And what's great about the Canton S strain is that it's completely sequenced uh, and it's well annotated for its genetics. So we know a, a many majority of the genes in Canton S and we also know their function. Hmm. So we have this Canton S strain that's been inbred in the lab. So it's very homogenous in its genetics. And that's a, a control strain that we're finding uh, the flies settle about two body lengths apart from each other. And then, so kind of putting it together, you're going to play with this protein or this gene expression. And if the flies are not doing the two body lengths that you would normally see, that's telling you that there's been a change yeah, in the behavior. Yeah, for sure. And so that's actually the initial data of my uh, project so far is when we mutate this specific gene, Um, there's multiple ways you can actually do a mutation. So there's a deletion mutation where you take the gene completely out, so there's no protein, or you can have point mutations where you just change part of the gene, or you can have uh, a mutation in its regulatory region, which could upregulate the gene so there's more proteins. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to test uh, a multiple amount of these mutations. So the initial data that I have is we've done a deletion of the gene, Mm -hmm. and it actually shows that females get a lot closer together while males are maybe even a little further apart or as as close as normal Cantonese. Hmm. And do you have a like a kind of a thought as why that difference would exist between males and females? Yeah, so um, when you especially when you're studying Drosophila melanogaster there's whenever you see a sex difference there's sort of a quick thought of what the candidate might be and there's neural differentiation between males and females. Hmm. So there's, it's called double sex neurons. Uh, double sex neurons? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's a, a dimorph. The fru, the fru ones? Yeah, the fru promoter or the fru something along this. This is genetics. Anyways, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but there's sexual dimorphism in their neuron structure. So dimorphism. So dimorphism being males have one form of neurons and females actually have a different structure of those neurons. So just before you keep going, does yeah. that mean you can look at a fly and tell me if it's a boy, male or female, or you actually have to check neurons? Uh, so both. <laughs> so you can actually look at it, the difference between a male and a female. And once you get more familiar with it, it gets a lot easier where the males are generally smaller and they have a very dark spot on their most posterior end Mm. Uh, and females are a little bigger and they have more of a striped pattern and you just get used to that 
Wow. All right. And they're fruit flies, too, so they're tiny. So you, you have to get used to it after a while. Find them on your bananas. Yeah. If you get good. I mean, I know that Riley always, like, he when he's sexing them, which means separating them by sex, um, he doesn't use the mic- microscope. He just looks. Yeah, really? I don't do that either anymore. Yeah. It's it's because it's quicker. So you don't have to use the microscope. And you could just kind of see, all right, this one's smaller. It's got that black spot. That's a male. But I, I generally get. What a get... fun skill to have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Write that on my resume. <laughs> yeah, I know the difference between male and female flies. All right. <laughs> um, so sorry. So that physically you can look at them and that tells you if yeah, it's male you or female. Yeah, you determine But then you can female. also, you said their neurons are different too. Yeah, their neuron anatomy is mm-hmm. different, specific to the, the dimorphic neuron. Like the majority are quite similar, but there's the specific dimorphic neuron. Mm-hmm. And the only way you could actually tell is if you like somehow fluorescent made those neurons fluorescent, okay. and then you can see a difference between males and females. Okay, and so then when you when you saw the difference in terms of their behavior when you uh, deleted the gene, um, what what could that potentially mean? Why would that happen? Yeah, so for the difference between males and females, um, we largely are associating uh, dopamine which is a neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. So when I talked about a neur- one neuron communicating to another neuron, it does it by releasing a neurotransmitter into the synapse. And what's a neurotransmitter? Uh, a neurotransmitter is just a, a chemical. Okay. It's a type of molecule that can be released into the synapse. So one neuron releases it into the gap, to, mm-hmm. which then it uh, binds to the other neuron on receptors so the signal can continue down. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so we, we have, uh, dopamine been, dopamine has been implicated as important for our social behavior. Uh, what we're also seeing is that where I've characterized our protein neural ligand in the brain, it's a structure called the mushroom bodies. And there are dopamine neurons coming into the mushroom bodies and coming out of the mushroom bodies as well as dopamine neurons are, a lot of dopamine neurons are the sexually dimorphic neurons. So there we all tied it back together at the end. (laughs) Cool. And is there a difference, or if you know, I guess then in terms of how autism behaves in male and female humans then? Uh, I actually don't know uh, a lot about the human side Mm -hmm. of autism. I'm pretty sure there's a difference in the prevalence of males, females. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know But much not necessarily about the social cues. About the actual what behavior? You, no, right. not as much. Right. That'd be interesting to know if it like links to the flies. Is that kind of... That would be really cool. To, huh. Yeah. We know, um, I guess in, in autism, the social space sort of thing is that they they generally don't want to be too close to people. Hmm. They're like, oh, no, I, I, I think I need, my, I need extra space. Is there yeah. the reverse? Are there like... Um, similar neuropsychiatric uh, disorders or or any pity with autism that always wants to be really really close to people yeah well I think um, I think when you talk about autism you need to talk about autism spectrum disorders Uh. so it's not just a specific disorder there's a a wide spectrum um, where it could be very mild and that is uh, what's that called the mild one? Yeah. Asperger's. That's, that's what cool. it is. Okay. Yeah. So Asperger's is the mild end of the autism spectrum disorder where autism is more of the severe, severe end. And so there's different severities to it and they all have, they can have different uh, behavioral characteristics. So I have, I, I do know of, uh, my girlfriend actually works at Sari Therapeutic Riding. It's a stable. And she tells me about the autistic children there can do both get closer or further apart it's more a preference Hmm. so some of them prefer to be close to an animal like a horse Mm -hmm. and some of them actually like to sit a little further back so i think it's just specific to the individual 
So you've started now, you did the deleting of the gene and you saw those differences. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that when you do something else, like you were talking about, you could actually kind of, um, where like mutate the gene yeah it still is there but it's not gone yeah is that kind of the next step to see if that is in my project so I'm, I'm going a couple ways in testing the behavior in the different mutations so we've done the deletion which is the complete removal of the gene um, we also collaborated with the Maring lab who created a fly line that has a genetic tool in it called RNAi or RNA interference mm -hmm. So how that works is um, you have DNA, which can then make RNA, which can then make protein, and proteins are the actor molecules of the body. Mm -hmm. So when we do RNA interference, we're able to actually knock down that intermediate RNA, which then effectively knocks down the gene, so you have redu a reduced number of protein. Mm -hmm. So that's there, there's pros and cons to doing it this way. Um, the the con being that when you have a complete deletion, you've removed all of the protein. Mm -hmm. When you do with an RNAi or RNA interference, you knock down the gene. So there still is some protein and some RNA, but the majority of it knocks down. Mm. Uh, so that's the con. The pro being RNAi can be controlled to a very succinct level. Like I, so I've, I've characterized in the brain of Drosophila that it, the, my protein is very abundant in a couple of structures in the brain. So we can actually uh, succinctly target our RNAi to those structures. So instead of looking at the entire body having no protein, we're just looking at the brain having a reduction of the protein, which is what we're genuinely curious about because in the brain is where they do their decision making and that's where the sensory integration of social cues comes into the brain and then it goes to the rest of the body. Right. <coughs> so if... I guess I have two scenarios. If mm -hmm. you find that um, whether you delete the gene or or mutate the RNA or anything, uh, you get the same outcome, what ha what does that mean? And then if you see something different, what does that mean? So um, what we're we're hoping for is I guess not hoping, but what we expect to see is that when we knock it down in the brain we're going to see a similar behavioral phenotype where females get closer together and males are the same or maybe slightly further apart. So phenotype is what the actual expression is, so what you Correct. actually end up doing. Yeah, right. what, what happens with the behavior. Right. So um, we're, we're expecting to see that when we knock it down in these structures, specifically not even just the brain but in the actual structures that I identified, we'll have a similar behavioral assay where females get closer together, males slightly further apart. Mm -hmm. What might, it has to be taken case by case because what might happen if we knock it down, if we're seeing the females getting closer together but only a little bit, then that might be attributed to the fact that the mm -hmm. protein was knocked Still. down but only a little bit. Right. Interesting. So, yeah, it's sort of, you have to take it case by case. Yeah. And just to be devil's advocate, what happens if you see the opposite? The males are closer and the females are further? Ooh, good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if we're seeing, let's say, the the RNAi knockdown. If we're seeing the males get closer and the females get further, it, maybe we're knocking down specific of, of those sexually dimorphic neurons. Mm. So maybe, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah. Maybe we've knocked down one of those specifically dimorphic neurons. Yeah. When if it's a complete mutation, it's affect it's affecting all the neurons that has our protein. Maybe when we're using our RNAi, we're only hitting some of those neurons, and it maybe has a differential effect. But yeah. that's a so, so hypothesis maybe, at best. <laughs> so maybe it's like could be a B 
because you're narrowing down more specifically the target as to where you're reducing, be it you know half or all yeah. uh, of the protein. Uh, it's if it just so happens that specific location might have a, the opposite effect versus like global, hmm. global r- removal. I mean, yeah. there's, I guess a lot of a lot of ways that could go. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of situations, and, and you kind of got to look at each one specifically. Yeah. What yeah. happened with what technique? Because not only so we've done deletion and we've also done RNAi, but not only that is we have other mutations in the protein that might overexpress the protein. Hmm. So that would mean there's more of the protein. Correct, and and those might behave a different way as well. Hmm. And so I guess with flies, how many flies do you need to do this to? Because I'm wondering, like, from a process perspective, how many times do you have to do it to, to say, you know what, this is the result? actual significance or yeah. actual conclusive data. Yeah. So um, our lab usually likes to do three, uh, three replicates once a week for three weeks. So we do three times three times three. So, <coughs> so how, we, how many flies is that? And each replicate we do... Uh, 15 flies. I I like to do 15, so it's between 12 and 17. Mm -hmm. And the reason we do that is because flies' behavior are dependent on the the density of the group. Hmm. So when you have more flies in a smaller chamber, their behavior is different. So they actually used to do the behavior in this lab with uh, like 50 flies in a large chamber. But because it's density dependent, we moved it to a smaller chamber with less flies, and then it's less work for Wesley. Thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I guess going off of that, when I picture a chamber, I'm thinking like this, like clear box. Like, what does a chamber look like? You're I, close. You jump in there. Too. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, you're <laughs> close. So, uh, with our specific uh, lab, our chambers are glass plates, and in the middle of two glass plates, we have dividers, and the dividers basically make an area in the middle of the two glass plates that's a triangle. Mm. And the reason we do the triangle is uh, flies have uh, an, innate, an, an innate behavior called negative geotaxis, hmm. which means they like to go against gravity. So when you knock mm-hmm. them down to the bottom of the chamber, they all like to crawl to the top. Okay. And the reason we like to do, or the reason we do a, a triangle chamber is it forces them together into a group, right. and then they're able to then settle at that distance. Right. So then, again, to both of you, why flies? Why do we do stuff Why flies? flies? Good question. Well, uh, first big reason to use flies, I think, is that we have a completely sequenced genome. So we're removing a lot of factors with uh, genetic variability when we have a completely inbred strain and then we're mutating just a single gene and we know that we've only changed one gene, the rest of the genetics is the same. So when you say sequenced genome, that means <coughs> like their genes make sense. Yeah. So okay. well, yeah, when, uh, when we're talking genes, we're talking uh, like if in humans we have chromosomes, yeah. so we've sequenced all the chromosomes of the of Drosophila. We've done it in humans now as well, but we've sequenced all the chromosomes in Drosophila. We know not only have we sequenced it, but we also know what I mean by annotated is we know a lot of the genes' functions too. Mm-hmm. So we know when we're manipulating one specific gene as opposed to another, and we're getting this change in behavior that we can result it towards that manipulation. Okay. So that's one reason. Their genes are ready for you to do whatever you want with them. Basically. I love, yeah, I love genetics and we can manipulate genetics. Okay. That's one reason. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, another reason being uh, time period. Hmm. So if, let's say, we're doing the same research on mice, uh, to Ariel can tell you the age a little better than me, but I think they live, what, two, three years long? <coughs> yeah, it's pretty tough to get a mouse older than two years. Yeah. Two years is as long as you'd go. So, much. yeah. So if you wanted to do this type of experiment multiple times 
with multiple mice, you'd have to wait an extended period of time. With flies, they live up to 30, 60, 30 to 60 days. So mm. you can grow them very quickly, or not grow them, but you can <laughs> rear them very quickly and you can do your experience, yeah. experiments, multiple experiments and with a large number of flies. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so on that note, I'm in the pregnancy lab. So I'm wondering like, what happens when the flies reproduce? In which regard? And in terms of this gene, like, do you, what happens? What does so, it? <laughs> no, that's actually a, a better question than you might think because um, Drosophila are diploids. So they have two strands, <coughs> excuse me, they have two strands of DNA that mm -hmm. complement each other. So if we were to do a mutation on one of the strands, then uh, the next generation, only one of the offspring would have that mutation, the other of the offspring wouldn't. Interesting. So we actually do this mutation, and in Drosophila, there's a really cool technique called balancer chromosomes, which I won't bore you with, <laughs> but you can also make homozygous mutations, which means you have a mutation on both strands. Okay. So that means males and females, both strands have the mutation, so all offsprings will then have the mutation. Interesting. Yeah. So if you had all the money in the world and you were going to do this research, would you stick with flies or what would you do? Because you kind of mentioned mice, you could do it in humans, what would you do? Yeah, uh, if I had all the money in the world, first I'd buy a Ferrari. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, I'd probably want to, if I could, uh, do it, I would love to do research on all these species. I'd like mm -hmm. to do it on flies, on mice, and on humans mm -hmm. because I, I like the uh, malleability of the Drosophila genetics. We can manipulate any gene however we want, we can see how it affects that, which is really cool to me. Yeah. I'd also like to do it on mice because it's one step further from Drosophila that way, but it's also one step closer to humans, so it's more applicable results possibly. Right. So it'd be really cool to do that on mice, and then I'd also love to do it with humans in that I'd be able to screen humans for any mutations they may have and see how that might affect into their lives. Interesting. Cool. And then um, kind of we're closely getting to the end. Um, but if why, how did you get into this, getting into flies and genes and all this? Yeah. Stuff? So in my first couple of years, I was on the med school path as 99 percent of biology students at Western. <laughs> I did my undergrad here at Western. Um, and after second year, I took a second year genetics course and I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> so then I go into third year and uh, one of the genetics course fit into principles of human genetics fit into my course schedule. So I thought, oh, I'll take it, whatever. And I turned out that this third year genetics course I loved. So I was like, what's the difference? So in my second semester of my third year, I took another genetics course to see if I would still like it. And again, I, I fell in love with it. So from then on, I switched into full on honors in genetics. And I uh, finished my program at <coughs> at Western. And in my last year of study, I took a, a seminar course in genetics, which uh, my current supervisor happened to be teaching. And oh. she was able to explain her current research, and we went did an in-depth look that, look into that. And it was something that I was really interested in. So after I was done my undergrad, I had mm -hmm. approached her, and I was able to move on from there. So if just based on your experience, any of our maybe undergraduate listeners who are in the same boat as you, genetics is interesting, but mm -hmm. they don't really know where to go. Do you have any advice for them of what they could potentially uh, do? Yeah. Well, first off, I hear they changed second year genetics, so it's better <laughs> than it was when I took it. <laughs> um, but uh, for progressing through the genetics module, I my first recommendation would just be just try a third year genetics because I, I really enjoyed it. And then they just got better from there. Hmm. They all build on each other. There's a really cool techniques. 
Um, so just just try one genetics course, and there's a lot of them you can take. So whatever might fit your personality or whatever you're interested in. Right. Cool. So you're going into your second year in about a week or so. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what's kind of what's the next step in your because you've done the deletion of the gene. What's what's next? Yeah. So. Um, my next step will be to implement the RNAi, RNA interference, to knocking it down. Uh, we'll look at knocking it down specifically in the regions that I've identified in the brain, as well as the other mutations that we use um, <coughs> where we have an overexpression or what seems to be an overexpression of the protein. So I'll be doing the social space on those, and that'll probably run me to the end of this coming semester, and then I'll be finishing up and doing some more writing past there. Fun. So a question for both of you. When you see a fly, what do you think? Like, My friend. Really? Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. it end doesn't them, End them just like that. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, yeah, I we, mean. We, you... just, we just trained, like, a, we got a new student in, and she was, like, <laughs> scared of the flies. And I was like, trying to show her, like, look, there is no ethics. This is another good thing. Right? You, you, you said you no, have all the true. money in the world to do a study. What happens if you have all the money in the world but all the ethics you concerns, the ethics you won't be able board. to do experiments you want to do. You can't, they're not going to let me, uh, you know, m manipulate Wes's Neuroligon 3. So. <laughs> or my children. Don't touch them. Yeah. <laughs> so so, you, so, so with you, ethics in the way, you know, that's another good thing about uh, flies is that for know, sure. there's, no, there's no ethics concerns. I, that's all for all inverted. Very minimal. For, Very uh, minimal. Well, what ethics concerns? <laughs> you have to ethically sacrifice your species. I don't think there there's no restriction on us for invertebrates. Oh really? No, I oh, think okay. that there, there are some people who make claims, but according to like CCAC guidelines and stuff, That's we don't fine. we don't have any restriction whatsoever. Oh, good to know. Interesting. All right. <laughs> no, so, we don't, we don't uh, have them. And and well, I mean, I don't necessarily have to go into it, but I don't think there's any reason. There's no reason we would have to have any ethical concerns. So no, I try to show yeah. that by being, you know, like we have extra fly. There are flies everywhere. I mean, you literally have flies flying All everywhere. Over your That's house. why I asked. I'm like, do you see yeah. a fly? And you're like, oh, I'm running out of flies. <laughs> so so you, I'm yeah. I, I'd be 90% sure that I carried them home at some point. <laughs> be careful. PETA might be listening. Yeah. Oh, gosh. All right. They care about the flies. <laughs> well, do you want to quickly give us uh, kind of an update? If anybody wants to learn more about your research or just get in touch with you, what would be the best way to do that? For sure. We have a... Uh, uh, a website for our lab. It's at simonlab.wixsite.com slash simonlab. Uh, and so you'll be able to find all my supervisor's research and my lab mate Riley, who Ariel mentioned earlier, as well as the undergrads. We all have our research on there. Uh, you can get more familiar with that, as well as my email is jrobi8 at uw.ca. Awesome. Thank you very much, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. It's uh, It's been great to have you on the show. Appreciate it. Okay, so that is about the end of our show. Uh, thanks for listening to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I have been your host, Ariel, here with my co-host Tanya and Roger Hudson behind the computer over there producing for us. And we've That's been... me. <laughs> Excellent. And we've been interviewing Wes Robinson. So if you want to hear our show regularly, it's available at gradcast.ca online, streaming. All the episodes are there. Uh, but also, if you're hearing us on the radio, then you'll know that we're on CHRW 94.9, 6 p.m. every Tuesday. And we also pu put it out there as a podcast. So 
Um, if you, you know, go on your phone and download the podcast app of your choice and you search Gradcast, there's a purple logo. We're there, available. Uh, same on Google Play, whatever equivalent on your phone if you have a Huawei for Chinese <laughs> phone or whatever. Uh, you can get you can get our uh, our podcast wherever podcasts are available. It's an interesting pronunciation. <laughs> Do it. Huawei. Check it out. There's awesome stuff on Gradcast. Thank you. Huawei. <laughs> Huawei. If you want to come on the show, then contact us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. And that's if you want to be a guest on the show or you want to join us as a committee member. We do have room for a few more people, and we're always looking for a hand. We're a fun committee. You can come join us. Thank you guys for listening. I'm never going to look at flies the same way. So thank you, Wes. No problem. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.